Welcome to the Pedagogy Podcast brought to you by the Bristol Institute of Learning and Teaching. Each week we look at a different piece of the pedagogy pie and see how we can inspire exciting new practice at the University of Bristol. We hope you enjoy this slice of teaching and learning engagement. I'm Louise Halson and I'm joined by Baker who is going to tell us all about what she's been reading and how it's influencing her practice. So I'd like to hand you over if you give us a quick introduction. Hello, well, uh, Louise, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Baker Zwingmann. I am a lecturer in the law school. And um, the topic I want to talk about uh, today is comparative pedagogy. And to give you a bit of a sort of background on myself, how I got into that, is that I am German and I did my law degree uh, in Germany. I did an Erasmus year in France where I did uh, so-called maitrise at that time, so fourth year degree. And then since 2004, I've been in the UK, first working at Cardiff University and now at Bristol. So I've had experiences in three very different higher education environments and cultures, and that has sparked an interest for me to see, okay, how is that influencing who I am as a teacher and also, yeah, as a learner? And uh, that's how I got into this, what I've very <laughs> pretentiously labelled comparative <laughs> pedagogy. Lovely, thank you. So in terms of the research, um, what was your kind of problem that you were trying to fix in looking at this and then seeing how it actually links to your practice? Uh, well, it all started with um, my sort of becoming enrolled on uh, the Cardiff's version of the CREATE programme they call it um, Certificate in University Teaching and Learning, and their first unit was all about exploring yourself. So basically knowing yourself better would mean that you could actually be a better teacher. So who am I as a learner and as a teacher? And reflective practice was um, something I had never done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so I got into that uh, and working my way through the reading list, I read, okay, lots about English language materials on pedagogy and then I thought okay let's explore the German language literature and I didn't expect any big surprises and I didn't expect to be um, um, you could say well potentially even shocked by mm. the discoveries or um, how that would affect myself but what I realized was that actually the way I am as a learner which then impacts on the way I teach was heavily influenced by having grown up in the German higher education system or school education system as well and higher education system and then I started digging into these differences what the literature tends to label so the Anglo-American UK in particular also curriculum tradition versus the more continental European especially sort of German uh, language countries and then northern European didactic tradition and just to clarify, because lo pro uh, probably lots of you um, listening uh, flinched at this point, <laughs> hearing the word didactic. Uh, so what I should uh, emphasize is that uh, the English word didactics, which has a very negative ring to it and sort of sounds like indoctrination and very strict teachers and, and uh, rules and very much sort of top down education. Um, has nothing whatsoever to do with didactic as a sort of technical term in uh, the German language literature on pedagogy. Um, as a technical term, all it means is a label for the art and science of teaching and learning. 
So if you look at an English language dictionary, the word you find for that is pedagogy. So you should translate that way to find a proper translation and then also appreciation for what it's actually about. Um, and it is about that in the same way, in the sense that pedagogy is trying to explore what it means to teach, what it means to learn. And the same happens in the German language di discussion around the term didactic. Mm. Interesting. What is, I think, then, or rather where I then got really fascinated by uh, were the differences and how they impacted on me as a sort of learner and a teacher. And I think that's still very much present today, potentially much more than I thought it would be. Um, and what I'm now doing is sort of broad brush strokes, potentially very cliched, mm -hmm. uh, but the curriculum tradition is usually depicted by um, the idea of the curriculum. That is what needs to be delivered. That is, you could say, the knowledge prescribed in that curriculum, a national curriculum most of the time, is um, the key. That's the, the purpose uh, of teaching, of learning. Uh, and that's where then teachers come in, basically policymakers decide this curriculum. The teachers have very little choice and they are expected to deliver it. It's a question um, when you sort of think about um, the UK's history, say 19th century, where teaching was much more scattered, <laughs> let's call it that, not under the control of a national curriculum. And then things like class and um, money and all of that impacted on the quality of the education you got. So the curriculum was a means to an end in the sense that um, no matter where you were, you were supposed to get the same kind of education and then teachers were supposed to make sure of that. So in that sense, the curriculum was very much a means to an end. Uh, it was also then the idea of we're teaching what everyone should know mm. about this society, this country that we live in. And then flipping this round sort of towards the didactic tradition, they went, you could say, the other way in the sense that knowledge was not the, the purpose the end game of what education was about. Rather, if we go back to sort of modern didactic tradition, starting with the sort of end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, especially Willem von Humboldt was very influential there, where he said, okay, education is not about learning, or rather it's not about studying in a very pragmatic sense. It's about realizing who you are mm. and, and fulfilling your potential, becoming an educated human being was about realizing yourself, your capabilities, your abilities, acquiring abilities and knowledge that would help you become, you could say, a good person, the best person you could be. Um, and in that sense, if you're seeing it that way, if that is the overall purpose, then knowledge is just a means to an end. And the teacher is the facilitator. Mm -hmm. uh, and the teacher ends up having a role of creating learning opportunities that allow the students to realize their potential. And that is a very different twist on what happens in the classroom. Mm. And because when you look at the curriculum tradition, what you do to measure success is to say, okay, I can test my students and see how much they know. 
and then I know I'm a successful teacher because I achieved the objectives of the curriculum. My teachers, uh, sorry, my students know about the First World War, the Second World War, the Civil War, um, and whereas in the didactic tradition, what you would ask is the question, do my students know about the First World War, the Second World War, becomes much less important than the question, what should they learn from knowing about this? Mm. And has that helped them knowing about this? Has that helped them to become um, much more aware of who they are and what they can do and how they think about stuff? So critical thinking is sort of built into the whole system because the students are expected to make that journey of learning by themselves. And what I found, again, fascinating is that when you think about topics that are discussed at the moment, um, I think in quite a few universities here, Bristol in particular as well, decolonization is just this realization that our students are not just a sort of, well, they're not all the same. Mm. And, and just acknowledging that fact that you're just stuffing knowledge into someone, <laughs> they will react to information differently. Mm. And people from say ethnic minority backgrounds will approach um, the same topic, say the First World War, in a very different way. Mm. And so the didactic tradition has that sort of built in, in the sense that, that the teacher needs to be prepared for that and needs to work on the assumption that all the students are different and will gain a different learning experience from the same subject matter. Mm. And that is sort of an expectation, um, and which then of course, has repercussions on how I design um, teaching materials and the whole learning experience. If I'm just choosing materials in terms of, okay, what are key points of the First World War that students need to know? Would a curriculum tradition teacher ask in terms of what's important about the First World War that they need to know to understand how it happened and what what happened um, sort of during the war and then afterwards and how things developed? Mm. Um, as a didactic tradition teacher will probably ask, okay, what do I want to learn? What, what, what do I want my students to learn about this? The destructive power of war, how wars start, how can I make that into something that they can experience and they can actually study about this and then learn from this? And then again, accounting for the fact that not all students will take away the same lesson, mm. the same learning experience. I think there's also the emotional connection there to certain topics as well because yeah. that can have a major impact on how people can take in information but also how they react to it and also the kind of things that they would want to write as well. So it's almost that they can take ownership of the direction of their learning rather than yeah. just, as you were saying, being given the topics, being given the yeah. information. It's how do you experience it? What does it mean to you rather than just what does it mean? What is it? Which I think is a really interesting way of thinking about how we how we engage our learners with, with the material that we're teaching. Yeah, and it's also this idea that, which took me a while to get my head around, that mm. facts are not facts. <laughs> you just think, okay, yeah. um, certain things are facts. I mean, sort of battles happened during the First World War, going with that example again. Um, but again, what they mean for the people that look at this stuff and um, maybe have 
um, these days, probably uh, more the Second World War, when you have parents that fought, uh, or grandparents that tell you about it because they fought in it, mm. that is a much more personal connection and gives an entirely different spin on things compared to someone who hasn't doesn't have that personal connection mm, or who has never um, had any contact with it. Um, if you think about English history in terms of um, the Scottish um, sort of move for independence, um, they have much more connections to certain things than, say, someone living in the south of England. And that uh, where then the national curriculum would try to force or try to push everyone towards the same content, a didactic tradition teacher can actually make much more deliberate choices. So I think what I liked about the whole construction was very much this idea that the teacher is in charge and the teacher has a lot of autonomy to decide and also that students have a lot of autonomy mm. um, as you said th it's they are taking ownership of what they learn potentially also how they learn mm. and I think that I found that really really appealing um, and um, so what I then started doing was first with myself in the sense that just realizing that um, how these influences were there, um, which then made me think about, come back to the first question you asked in terms of what was <laughs> the problem I was trying to fix, uh, was that I had noticed over the years um, that there were sometimes issues where I would say the students and I were not communicating very well and I um, never knew quite why. Um, and then looking at this literature and just thinking about myself, reflecting about myself, made me realize that I was going into the classroom with quite a few assumptions. Mm. Um, and of course the students were also coming into the classroom with quite a few assumptions. And they were not necessarily the same. So we were essentially had a um, yeah, hidden gap, um, <laughs> unconscious, um, um, yeah, assumptions on both sides um, where I then that I didn't bridge. Um, so in I was always and I um, still do. <laughs> I was always assuming that students are actually yeah they're in charge of their own learning, quite specific in terms of the word, not the studying but the learning, <laughs> um, and uh, it is their responsibility and their job, and I can help them. But at the end of the day, if they don't pick up the textbook, if they don't uh, do the exercises, it's not my job to force them. It's their choice. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt very, very reluctant to, yeah, to really push students into that, saying, okay, you need to do this to be a sort of disciplinarian teacher. I, I never liked that mm -hmm. attitude. Um, so I just said, okay, hey, you didn't prepare for the seminar your loss um, you're not getting a lot out of it but um, that's um, your choice and you're allowed to make it and um, the students of course were assuming that I would push that I would actually make them learn in that sense that I would make them study and if when I didn't we're thinking um, is she abandoning us is she <laughs> just she's not pushing she's not sort of trying to um, 
to to make us do things and and we should be guided in terms of how we should read and what notes we should take and what other key points of um, specific seminar topic and I was saying hey you figure that out for yourself I can't tell you what you think about a case I mean law in particular is not really about finding one right answer because there isn't one it's usually it's usually about have you made a good argument that supports your position and I may not like your argument, I may really disagree with you, but that's not my job. My job here is to make you a lawyer, which means I need to make sure you're arguing. You're not just stating an opinion with no foundation whatsoever. And I think that was very difficult for some students to really appreciate. Mm. <laughs> so, so that was definitely something where students kept asking for in terms of what are the key points what we're supposed to be taking from the seminar and I was going to okay yeah this is really not my job I can't tell you what you should think and just reading that literature then made me realize oh yeah <laughs> there's actually a very practical reason for why these sort of conceptions about what happens in the seminar room are clashing <laughs> and um, so at that point that one that was for me then the problem I was trying to fix and what I was doing or trying to do, still trying, so working on it, is yeah, bridging that gap in mm. terms of just appreciating that we're coming from two different perspectives yeah. and working on making my expectations a bit more transparent, um, hopefully then also making it obvious that I don't expect them to have a specific position on something, just appreciate what's there, what's before them, study the material, and make up their own minds about it, and that they actually have the right to make up their own minds about it, and, and should um, encourage them to do that, and that that is my only expectation, not that they have a specific opinion or position and defend it. Mm. And as you probably can imagine, that's difficult. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those... You need to do it every time, consciously remind yourself that this is what's happening. Also with teaching materials, I would design, it's again, it's always thinking about this in terms of, oh yeah, I'm coming from this perspective and this is what I want my students to do. And the students will look at this from a completely different angle with completely different assumptions mm -hmm. and see an entirely different challenge, one I hadn't actually meant to put there. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, it's kind of got me thinking about the whole um, something that I've always struggled with is sometimes you have to give students permission yeah. to, to have their own thoughts, to question things. And um, from my own student experience, I found it really tricky to question literature because I was a bit like, who am I, a, a first year, second year student, to question Professor so-and-so who's written 17,000 papers on this particular topic? So how am I a lowly student supposed to engage with that and you know have permission to critique it and have mm. permission to go actually I, I don't agree with that and I've got some arguments which are, are to do with that and I think there's a real there's not just a power relationship I think in the classroom between lecturer and student it's also mm. student and the canon the 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 literature that you know there, there's a power dynamic there a, a person who may have died 50 years ago still has power over these students because of their legacy of what they they've written as well which can be yeah really difficult for them to get their head around in terms of, of being able to challenge that and critique. Absolutely. Mm. Um, and I think it's also come back to, to what we talked about earlier is that you as a student may have experiences that shape your view on a specific topic. Mm. And that is something that these writers may actually not have had. So your point is 
um, the arguments and the position where you're coming from is something that you contribute to that debate as a learner and you have a right to do that because they may not actually be have been able to appreciate um, the experiences that you have had even say let's say um, you're a disabled student and that poses any number of challenges and that shapes your perspective on how learning works and then you read literature about learning and it just completely brushes that aside and then it's perfectly legitimate I would say for a student to come up with this position and say well that's nonsense but as you said having the courage to actually do that as a student is difficult um, uh, the way I always put that to my students is that, okay, you've got the UK Supreme Court and the judges, and they say, okay, they're only human. They're really experienced lawyers, they're really experienced judges, but they may get it wrong, and you're allowed to criticize them, tear them apart. <laughs> uh, you may actually have to do that if your client ends up on basically the wrong side of a particular legal precedent. You have to make a position for your client. You need to learn how to argue against an overwhelming set um, of opinions that seems to point towards your client losing. And so for a lawyer, it's, it's never about yeah the right or the wrong position. It's very much about, can I defend my case? And so in that sense, it's yeah interesting how all of this plays out. Definitely, definitely. Um, so I'm kind of combining some questions here, <laughs> but um, thinking about those key messages from the paper, how are they now kind of influencing your practice? What have you done as a result? What kind of things do you now bring to your practice? Um, what I make a lot more um, explicit is that I want students to discuss. Mm -hmm. So it's just in terms of setting out, say, a seminar handout in terms of thinking about these questions, consider specific points, and very much literally in terms of the font, what I do is sort of the two asterisks around mm -hmm. the you, when I put the question, okay, what well, do you think about this? And you're entitled to think about this and have an opinion. And so that I essentially start at the point of asking for an opinion and then go back in and say, okay, how would you support your opinion with arguments? So where, how can we construct this as a legally reasoned um, argument that you could put into an essay so that I start a bit earlier um, and that um, what has been real challenge was to put this into a let's say designing teaching materials in a way that allows students more choice in terms of say reading um, that I give them say um, journal articles that have a very strong position and then I try to give them some that have the opposite position and don't necessarily tell them, okay, what is the mainstream between the two? Mm. Um, so that they, I, I ask them to really get to thinking about, okay, how am I reacting to this material? And that I make time in seminars for that very explicitly. Um, and as you said, to encourage students, to give them the courage to actually say, yeah, I disagree with that. I really do, and this is why. And then in many ways I come back to the uh, very practical flip on it, um, acknowledging the fact that we are <laughs> in a UK university um, <laughs> and that knowledge is, to a certain extent, uh, the, the end game, um, where I then say, okay, at the end of this year, 
the assessment is an essay. Of course, like essay, you need to do research, you need to come up with strong arguments. How would you turn that into a really good argument? Or how could you disagree with yourself? So that it comes back to these practical side um, sort of elements um, that they need to master. Um, and But it is definitely, um, from what I notice, it's a different way of teaching that I still see myself doing. And um, yeah, it's definitely mm. tricky. Definitely. And also I was, I was thinking about um, that kind of, when they come up with quite a strong opinion and then they might read something which would change their, their values or change their opinions, that must be quite challenging for, for students as well because you're then kind of getting them from a place which they might be quite certain about a particular way of thinking or a particular value that they hold quite dear and then they'll go read something, it may change their mind, it might change their worldview, which can mm -hmm. be quite mind-blowing for students. So it kind of gets back to that almost dealing with an uncertainty, which I think can be very, very tricky for mm -hmm. students who may be coming from backgrounds where there was uh, a black and white answer, there was mm -hmm. a yes, no, a true, false. So mm -hmm. you're opening their minds to lots of different arguments, opinions, potential facts, um, mm -hmm. those kind of things, which yeah. which then can really challenge maybe who they are as a person. And, and as we're going back to, that could should be what higher education is about as well not just the knowledge it's who am i it's it's yeah. it's who do i want to be i think as well which mm -hmm. i think you know that the way that you're, you're talking about your, your teaching and and getting them to question their own values i think is, is a really interesting way of getting them to figure out who they are and potentially who they want to be in the future as well yeah it's uh actually something again i read in um a german language um textbook about um sort of higher education that was actually what a lot more practical one so it uh, had flights of theory in there but it was tended to go for practical okay classroom situation what do you do and <laughs> but still in the introduction chapter one thing um really struck me and i never forgot that is the sentence it was just one sentence and saying learning is dangerous and Precisely for uh, what you just said, we're exposing students to things and theories and opinions that may v clash sometimes quite strongly with their worldview and how they saw the world around themselves and also themselves. And really learning and wanting to learn means that you're actually open to that and that you're realizing that that may happen, that maybe something new will change how you see the world and that is a tough challenge mm -hmm. and with some topics um, that can be really tricky to handle um, so I teach constitutional law for example um, so the activities of the Johnson government have been very enriching for our <laughs> <laughs> syllabus um, so it's this idea that uh, so at the moment, for example, one topic that is discussed um, very um, sort of heavily with the uh, by the government is that do we need the Human Rights Act? So it's a statute that incorporates uh, the European Convention and the rights, the human rights embodied in that European Convention that we all have. Um, so the Johnson government is currently thinking about abolishing it, and of course, basically. Uh, um, exam question on the silver platter um, we can ask our students okay do you think that would be a good idea and then seeing them 
wondering about that, whether we need human rights protection and whether the current system with human rights gone would allow us to still have the same rights um, that we've enjoyed so far because they're no longer protected. So where would they come from? So for them, really thinking through these kind of questions and appreciating how fragile some things are when we would consider them bedrock solid. Um, that is interesting, but it is also, yeah, um, in a seminar situation, you can have then really controversial discussions about it. And that is then sometimes um, tricky to handle. Definitely. But I mean, at the same time, that is one of the things why I love my job. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, hearing from the students as well, isn't it? It's that thing of once you have that openness to discuss those kind of things, you can learn so much more about your students, you know, what their values are, how they influence other people within your classroom as well. You know, you've got some really good people who can process and, and analyse and give a really good argument. They might be changing their peers' points of view and you're there watching that happen in real time, which I think is just just wonderful to, to see and to hear and be a part of mm -hmm. seeing physically seeing yep. <laughs> people's minds and potential values and worldviews being changed which it's almost um quite a privilege i think yep. at times in terms of teaching as well so that's absolutely definitely so um we've talked a lot about practice we've talked mm -hmm. about the literature in here as well um and we've kind of touched upon this but do you think that there are any kind of um barriers to what it is that you're trying to introduce within your practice um, well, the barrier is sort of myself in the sense mm -hmm. that I need to remind myself um, a lot about this stuff. So it hasn't become um, something that I now know how not to do or how to do. So it's still making myself sort of remember that there are different assumptions in uh, at play. Um, it's then, yeah, facing students who don't like it. Um, who are not necessarily appreciating uh, the freedom uh, as freedom, but rather as rudderless <laughs> at sea um, situation where they feel lost. Um, and um, then the other constraint is the m overall setting in the sense that um, I'm working at a UK university, so just going with completely different assumptions into this and trying to have my teaching be completely different to what everyone else is doing is unfair to the students um, because it just throws them completely for just one tiny element um, of their whole um, sort of um, academic year and um, so that's something I need to be aware of in terms of how far I can push things overall but then also um, it is not boilerplate in the sense that it needs adapting every single year and every single seminar group and down to the every single student. So how that topic plays out in a given year will be always different. Mm. Um, I mean, it's we know, all know it's different every year uh, anyway, but I think that adds sort of an element of uncertainty again um, where I then can't have could say ready-made solutions where it's quite a bit about being prepared for the uncertainty to play out in the moment yeah. and then wondering about okay am I going to let it or is this mm -hmm. something where I need to pull things back a bit and um, maybe make the students 
go back to um, you could say safer territory yeah definitely and I think also it's it's you having the bravery to let it run <laughs> as well isn't it sometimes yeah. going I think I know where this is going but it could completely go off in another direction and I might not know the answers and being okay with that as well and I think sometimes modeling that practice is is really good as well kind of going wow you've taken it in that direction I haven't prepared for that that's fascinating mm-hmm. but let's carry on going or actually we need to, <laughs> to kind of reel it back in again and knowing when to do that can be yeah can be quite quite concerning as well um and then kind of finally um obviously you want to end this on a positive mm-hmm. what, do, what are you seeing are the benefits of this particular approach in terms of your teaching um I think for me it's just very much awareness in terms of that I'm just much more aware of who I am as a teacher who I am as also as a learner and why I learn in a specific way and that my students don't do that and that I can bridge these assumptions that I can help my students getting the most out of a particular learning experience that I want them actually to get um, and where I also see that happening is more, um, you could say, as what we would probably label as personal tutoring activities, which is where I, in the law school, I'm um, responsible for the incoming study abroad students and uh, where they sometimes then have cultural issues in this particular sense, um, where they say, okay, my home, higher education culture and environment is entirely different to what the UK does. And you sometimes see them struggle, not because they are weak students, but just because the UK system is so completely different to what they are used to. And that I can help them basically get around that a bit um, and overcome certain barriers that shouldn't be there and that with a bit of tweaking um, they can handle easily. when they just basically say, okay, this is what they want me to do and this is what I would expect and this is not quite matching, so how can I get that to match? Um. Lovely. Um, so that's the end of the kind of quizzing part. Um, Baker, do you have any final thoughts, final things that you want to get across about the papers that you've read, about the concepts that we were talking about today in order to kind of end on a real kind of push as to why you want people to get involved in this kind of teaching um well i think um it comes back to sort of the label i chose comparative pedagogy um why is it useful for any of us why um should we engage with this well partly because we have lots of international students coming in and i think just being in a very practical sense being able to help them um bridge these um barriers um in terms of the, the, the clashing culture, that can be quite useful. But I think there are also then two points in terms of research or rather reading where I would want to dive deeper. One is this, um, something we talked about earlier, is the um, decolonizing um, the curriculum approach where I would say this has a lot to offer um, in terms of overall concept, just looking at other traditions on higher education, mm-hmm. education, teaching and learning um, can open up um, ways for us to s- just define or rather reconsider how we define teaching and learning, sort of other ways of knowing about things. Uh, that, that just could open up a lot of ways for us to do teaching differently. And then the other thing is that was get, uh, goes back to what you mentioned about power in the classroom. 
is that I have um, been wondering about uh, looking into critical theory um, and how that plays out or could help teach and one sort of um, person in, in that respect um, that I'm hoping to get a bit more stuck into is mm -hmm. uh, Stephen Brookfield mm -hmm. and his uh, work on all of that where I was thinking yeah this is as you say there's so much power in that situation the power dynamics in terms of how students engage with content with a teacher and how the teacher engages with the content and the student and that is definitely something i want to have a look at okay thank you very much it's been a fascinating conversation well thank you for having me <laughs> thank you